Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Bill Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Welcome to episode 160 of Reclaiming the Faith. Today, my wife and I are going to get into our third installment of our five-part series on Polycarp's letter to the Philippians. We're going to see Polycarp speak to the elders about what it means for them to live according to their calling. We're going to see Polycarp address some Gnosticism and also how to live faithfully in difficult times. So if you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on our Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Go subscribe to us there. Subscribe on Spotify, wherever you can download or stream podcasts. Also, please go check out my wife, Stephanie Baker's podcast, The Faithful Podcast with Stephanie Baker. Lots of great testimonies there for uh, you to be edified, encouraged with. So yeah, go check that out. Leave her a rating and review as well. Also, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency. You can find all of our content on omegafrequency.com. So please go check that out. Finally, uh, just give you a little bit of an update. Uh, totally done with my new book, The Final Abominable Temple. Uh, just recording the last couple of chapters. Um, for uh, audio versions of those, got the cover all finalized. So hopefully within the next week or two, I'll uh, give you all a little bit of um, a foretaste of what the book t- book cover will look like. So yeah, there you go. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 160. Stephanie Baker, thank you so much for being with me again on Reclaiming the Faith. This is a really such a blessing for me to have you as a regular part of this show. So thank you. Oh, happy to be here. Thanks for letting me be a part of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So in our last episode, we were talking about various members of the body of Christ. Uh, we talked about um, men wives, young men, young women, and basically how Polycarp is calling all groups to live according to Christ's teachings. Right. Yeah. So today we're going to get into one more group to kick things off in chapter six, as we're doing chapters six, seven, and eight today. And in chapter six, Polycarp is going to speak specifically to the clergy, to the elders and overseers. So uh, we discussed earlier that chapter six is kind of long. Yeah. So we'll do the first half and then the second half of six and then move on. So Steph, would you mind reading sure. the first half of chapter six? As for the clergy, they should be men of generous sympathies with a wide compassion for humanity. It is their business to reclaim the wanderers, keep an eye on all who are infirm and never neglect the widow, the orphan or the needy. Their care at all times should be for what is honorable in the sight of God and men. Any show of ill temper, partiality, or prejudice is to be scrupulously avoided. And eagerness for money should be a thing utterly alien to them. They must not be over ready to believe ill of anyone, 
nor too hasty with their censure, being well aware that we all of us owe the debt of sin. Mm. Yeah, so uh, just kicking this off, Polycarp, to me, you know, I don't know, we've been citing quite a bit of First Timothy. Mm-hmm. It seems like Polycarp is drawing off a lot of that letter. And to me, this rings, uh, it bring it brings me back to the second chapter of First Timothy, where he calls people everywhere to pray for all people because God is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. So God wants all to be saved, basically. Mm-hmm. And so he calls the, um, the clergy, the overseers, to have a generous, generous sympathy and a wide compassion for everybody. Right. Which has got to be really challenging. It is for me. <laughs> yeah. But again, like that's not something that um, only the clergy, only people in leadership in church should be doing. Aren't we all supposed to to be like that? Yeah. Do good to all people. Mm-hmm. Um, as uh, I think that's Galatians 6, do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith, but do good to to everybody. Right. So it just seems like, Polycarp is saying, you know, you uh, you overseers, you really need to make sure you're modeling this. And yeah. being in different leadership positions in church, you get a lot of problems pushed your way. Right. Uh, you get asked to deal with a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. And it can be really frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you're not, it talks about, partiality, um, I would imagine as a leader in a church that the person that's the most vocal is the one who's going to get their way. And so like in that way, whether you're you're not showing partiality, necess- they may not be the richest, they may be, but they may not be, but they're getting partiality because maybe they're the most vocal and you just want to keep the peace or whatever. And so you may neglect some of the others that may be quieter. And so, Mm. you know, there's a need to look out for all of them. And he, you know, Polycarp is naming off specific groups that are going to tend to be overlooked, like the widows and Mm. the orphans, especially. Because in society, those are the people who had no, no voice. And, you know, the church was, or should have been, and, you know, and often was elevating the status of these groups. So they're saying, make sure you do this because it's so against our human nature to look out for those groups. Yeah, yeah. That's um, like James 1 talks about that being pure and undefiled religion. Right. In a sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm again being drawn back to uh, 1 Timothy um, chapter three, because the character or the qualifications for an elder or for an overseer rather in first Timothy three, and also for deacons, none of them have to do with being um, a solid businessman, being uh, a CEO of a company or a leader in a company. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be a leader at all um, in your vocation to be an overseer in the church. Mm-hmm. 
it seems like they want people who are leading in modeling the character of Jesus. Right. And it doesn't matter like where you come from, mm-hmm. which I, I don't know that I've been a part of many churches like that. Right. Yeah, I think it's the people that would be a part of choosing the elders or the overseers or whatever are, you know, the congregation. And so in general, that's how it's done at churches. And when we're asked to, you know, think of who would probably fill this role well, we're generally going to pick the person who we would pick as like the leader, like you said, of the business. Yeah. Because they stand out. They look like they they know how to take care of things and make sure stuff happens. And there's there's a place for a lot of those skills, but that's not what you know is being as is mentioned in the Bible as qualifications. In fact, it probably will come and get in the way of that partiality. Mm. Yeah, there are um, in at least in our day, a lot of the people that rise to the top in mm-hmm. business are A-type personality folks. Mm-hmm. And those people are generally uh, not shy at all about speaking up. Right. So you were talking about the people who speak up, who seem to have these leadership type skills. Right. Um, would get picked for this mm-hmm. or would get looked at and almost like assumed that they should be in this this place. Right. Where it's just looking at that personality type rather and confusing personality with character mm. in a sense. Anyway. Yeah. It's also going to probably lend more toward extroverts. Right. Like you're talking about. So, right. The charisma. Yeah. And, a, and you know, there's, there's, a, there's a, a, a good need for somebody who can process more internally as well. So I think there's, there's no, no distinguisher among introvert, extrovert. I think that's, um, but that's how we, we see people. You know, that's how we pick folks is who stands out in that way. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I don't want to be unfair toward A-type personalities, but um, those who are so driven that rise to the top often have a lot more, uh, or appear to have a lot more respect for people like them. Mm. And so they tend to be partial toward people like them. Yeah. Not those who are, in the bottom socioeconomically of society. Yeah. Well, like Peter and Paul both come across as type A, you know, like they mm. were leaders, they were outspoken, and there was a place for them, but it took a, a big humbling. I mean, it takes mm. humbling for all of us, obviously. I'm not saying that we don't. Yeah. <laughs> all, But for for Peter in particular, like he had to keep being like, okay, you know, you need to kind of re, like realign the way that you handle this with the way that Jesus would handle it. Yeah. So. Yeah, and Paul kind of got humbled too. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Acts nine kind mm-hmm. of stuff, and then being beaten over and over and over. That that does Just, that sometimes. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's keep going. Um, Polycarp talks about them not having a bad temper. Mm. That's um. That's such a important qualification, I would think, for a leader of a church. 
being able to be long-suffering. Think about passage, uh, I think it's from Hebrews. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness God desires. I don't remember where that, no, that's James. That's James, James 1. Man, I struggle with that, mm. you know? And I, with, with the anger thing, you know, we're, we're told to be angry but not sin, right? In, uh, in Ephesians 4. But I think I justify my anger a lot more than I should. Kind of like any sin, for people, and I'm not trying to minimize what I just said, but like it just seems like we're we're very good at justifying crossing lines, right? But especially for people people that are overseeing the flock, um, really trying to take care of folks, we need to watch out for that. Uh, the whole righteous anger thing. There are only a few times where Jesus is indignant in Mark. I think it's only three or four times. I don't remember exactly, but um, it's, it's very small proportionally considering that he gets indignant, that he's right. just furious. Um, when he's being crucified, he's not indignant, right. you know? He's not indignant at his own suffering. Yeah, and you also seeing Jesus. You also see Jesus weep over the people who would desire him to be crucified. Like weep, weep. Yeah, which is usually not an emotion that um, you see a lot of church leaders have who are. Uh, really strong in business. But again, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. I shouldn't because we've seen some incredibly godly men Yeah, as, uh, as elders at mm-hmm. different stops along the way. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think that even using the, the world's criteria for leaders, you're going to come across some folks that, you know, can be that way, but can also you know, honor God fully with that. I think it's just, we have to be careful that that's not the criteria we're looking at. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that the temper thing is really big because, um, you know, you're, you're handling so many different people that are, you know, maybe going through difficult, they're coming to the church, they're, they may be going through really difficult life circumstances. You're going to have to handle things that are, really, really challenging, you know, like maybe um, a situation of marital unfaithfulness. You have to help the couple work through that. Or maybe it's, um, you know, supporting one spouse when the other spouse is, is in error or whatever, and you have to be able to be patient and kind in the midst of that. Even if you're like completely angry, you know, you're frustrated, you can't, you have to handle that in a way that would honor God. Yeah. Uh, the last phrase that I wanted to hit on before we go to the second part is uh, that they must not be over ready to believe ill of anyone, nor too hasty with their censure. So we got to be slow to believe that someone is in sin. Mm-hmm. And uh, not be quick 
to uh, inflict church discipline. Right. Uh, a lot of times the person who gets to mommy first mm -hmm. <laughs> is believed. Right. They get the opportunity to present the story. And then the next person almost by definition is going to be defending themselves. Right. And that seem a bit guilty. And so in church though, you just see so much drama. And if the person is in tears or if they seem exasperated or they have quite a story, it's easy to believe first. But the elder needs to be really slow, really slow to seek God on this, investigate things. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's really important. Uh, you, you and I and a couple of our friends were kicked out of a church, banned from campus without elders doing a single bit of investigation. Right. No investigation. Didn't ask us any questions at all. Mm -hmm. And were banned from a church. Yeah. That was um, very strange. It was very strange. Yeah. Um, because they were given one side and it was full of lies. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know. But um, I, I don't want to act like that we were an anomaly mm -hmm. because I'm sure that kind of thing happens quite frequently. Polycarp here, he wouldn't be saying, don't be quick to inflict church discipline. Yeah. If elders in the first and second century also didn't struggle with that kind of a thing. For sure. Yeah, I think it's... Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, there is a huge call on elders to and overseers to look after the flock, and so I think that sometimes that can that that can be the source of the hastiness. You know, like they, oh, we got to look out for this, and and there are times where you need if somebody's life is in danger or you know anything like that you know, abuse situation, something like that. Like you, you have to, um, you don't want to drag your feet on that and you want to investigate and you want to make sure that your people's are, your people of your church are safe. But like in our situation, nobody's life was in danger or anything like that. Um, there was some things said and yeah, so you need to investigate and, um, make sure that you're you're not um, creating even more division in the attempt to, you know, preserve. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, let's let's get into the second part. All right. If we pray to the Lord to forgive us, we ourselves must be forgiving. We are all under the eyes of our Lord and God, and every one of us must stand before the judgment seat of Christ, where each will have to give an account of himself. Therefore, let our serving of him be marked by that fear and reverence, which he himself no less than the apostles who brought us the gospel and the prophets who foretold the Lord's coming has enjoined upon us. Let us have a real ardor for goodness, taking every care to avoid giving offense and refusing all association with false brethren and those hypocritical bearers of the Lord's name who only lead empty heads astray. 
empty heads. I know. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so like, obviously he's going right at some teaching from Jesus. Mm-hmm. There, Matthew uh, chapter six in the Lord's Prayer. Right. Forgive us our trespasses as we as we forgive those who right. trespass against us. And then the concluding remark to the Lord's Prayer, for if you want your heavenly father to forgive you, you should forgive others. And then of course, Matthew 18 stuff in the chapter about church discipline, you also have that parable about uh, this debtor who owed, you know, a lifetime or a couple lifetimes of, of uh, debt. Branches, yeah. And he begs and gets it forgiven, mm-hmm. then finds a buddy who owes him $1,000 and has him thrown in prison, mm-hmm. right? And um, so we were just talking about some church hurt. Yeah. And, um, you know, it took me a while to really begin praying for their forgiveness, not just forgiveness, but like for them to repent and mm-hmm. be restored. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't like, just to be candid, I don't like saying uh, we need to pray for others because you know, it's setting us free because it, I mean, it, it, it does, it's yeah. good, you know, but, um, we, we need to, we, we need to give without expecting anything in return almost. And if yeah. I'm trying to pray for them for my own benefit, if I'm going through some religious thing just to benefit me, right. it doesn't seem very genuine, you know? But, I mean, there's, there's truth mm-hmm. in it. We need to really pray for those who persecute you. And that, the more we do that, the more we can look upon them with, I guess, um, sympathy. Right. Rather than, like, uh, judgment, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we have seen God handle some of that stuff. In his way, you know, uh, God, uh, what is it? Romans chapter 12, you know, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, it's mine to repay, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And we've seen that come, come about. Um, and I, I think there have been times when I was like happy about that, but I need to pay attention to my thoughts because God wants people to repent. God wants people to come to a saving knowledge of the truth. God doesn't want anybody to perish. And um, I'm going to have to sit before the judgment seat of Christ if I'm, if I'm, if I have an attitude or if I utter words or if I have actions that are not in line with, with Jesus. I, he is the judge. He is the embodiment of righteousness. And if I'm not acting like him, that's not a good thing. Right. What were you thinking? Uh, I'm actually reading a book about forgiveness right now. So mm. it's um, kind of timely with, um, with this. But uh, the book quotes C.S. Lewis, who said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. And um, it's interesting how many different folks that I feel like I've, you know, I've had to forgive and... Um, to think that there are people that I have wronged that, you know, I, I, I never have known that 
I needed forgiveness from them um, in some situations. But I think that um, it's definitely a challenge to give forgiveness. And it's a challenge to pray for those who um, have hurt hurt you, hurt us in the past. But um, I think that they, you know, we're all human and we all have made mistakes and we all want forgiveness. So that is such a huge thing. Like, I want to be forgiven. I want to, I want God's forgiveness. Um, You know, like we said, we have to stand, you know, be judged one day. And, you know, I want as much forgiveness as I can have in that, in those moments or just in life in general. I, you know, so I need to be quick to forgive. And especially because of that big debt of sin that we all owe. It's interesting how Polycarp is leaning so heavily on the readers, especially the clergy, to be forgiving and to be slow to censure, to be slow to enact church discipline. And yet he is so strong in him saying to keep completely away from false brethren, from false apostles, from these hypocritical bearers of the Lord's name who lead people astray, right? Take every care to avoid giving offense and take every care to have nothing to do with false brethren. So like, Clearly, you're supposed to forgive these false brethren, but he's also saying to shun them. Yeah. Well, I kind of took that as like, after you've gone through the right steps. Like, let's say, yeah, you've done all this and they're still, Yeah. they're not, they're going to create chaos and they're going to destroy the body of Christ. Yes, but it's still like you're, it's not that you're not forgiving them once right. they get to that point, then don't forgive them. That's mm-hmm. not what Polycarp's saying. He's saying we should still be forgiving of them, praying for their repentance, but also having nothing to do with them. Yeah, I think there's a big difference between like forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, I mean, you should try for reconciliation, but that's right. not the guarantee. You can still offer forgiveness and then. Yeah. You know, not have that person be a part of your life in the future. Right. And it, it seems very similar to like first uh Timothy chapter one with Hymenaeus and Alexander who have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So I have turned them over to Satan in order for them to learn to not blaspheme. Mm. Like the phrase turn them over to Satan is interesting because he uses that also in 1 Corinthians 5 regarding the, the man who's having relations with his stepmother. Right. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul's like, we need to bring that guy back so that he's not like destroyed, basically. Mm. We need to bring, do what we can to try to bring him back. And Polycarp is going to get into um, that kind of an a uh, an idea in a little bit, but let's go ahead and go to chapter seven. Oh yeah, I guess yeah. Something. I was just thinking, like, you know, the world is not a very forgiving place. Like the you know, in contrast to the church or in contrast to the body of Christ. Um, so this is something that is different than that, and you know, we offer more forgiveness than the average person does. We are we should be 
continuously, you know, in a place of offering forgiveness, even, you know, to those, you know, 70 times seven, our, our brother has wronged us. But um, I think that it comes across like we need to just forgive forever and we should, but it doesn't mean we need to just let people run amok and especially in the church, like we have to look out for those in the body, you know, if they're going to cause problems or create division. And I, I think that that's a hard line to walk. And that's where, you know, the wisdom of God and, um, you know, people that are, that love the Lord, that are caring for you, you know, you, it, it takes discernment to know when to, you know, walk away from that relationship. And yeah. it's, and there's no like, hard, fast rules necessarily on those. There's some, but the, there's a lot of gray area in forgiveness. And yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's, there's some hard and fast, but it's not, timetables are not clear. Right. You see timetables start getting enacted uh, throughout church history, mm-hmm. you know, in those first couple hundred years, uh, but not in the Bible. Right. So that's tough. Yeah. Um, real quick, I was talking about, Polycarp going to talk about, you know, reclaiming wanderers when they, when they go off, you know, the, the ones who have gone astray. He already did that with mm-hmm. something we covered. Anyway, <laughs> sorry about that. Let's go to chapter seven. All right. To deny that Christ has come in the flesh is to be antichrist. To contradict the evidence of the cross is to be of the devil and to pervert the Lord's words to suit our own wishes by asserting that there is no such thing as resurrection or judgment is to be a first begotten son of Satan. So let us have no more of this nonsense from the gutter and these lying doctrines and turn back again to the word originally delivered to us. Let us be sober and watch unto prayer, earnestly adjuring the all-seeking God to lead us not into temptation, since as the Lord has told us, Though the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. At some point in my life, I want to say to someone, hopefully in jest, let us have no more of this nonsense from the gutter. (laughs) I thought you were going to call somebody a first begotten son of Satan. (laughs) I really don't want to do that. No, it sounds like, like a good put down though, like... Yeah. Like there's just the phrasing of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe oh gosh, I think it's Polycarp. I think it's a story that Ignatius no 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 Irenaeus is telling about Polycarp interacting with Marcion and seeing him like along the way and mm-hmm. being like, Everybody get out of the pool. Like they're near a pool, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Get out of the pool. We got the firstborn of Satan in the pool. <laughs> gosh. <laughs> but Marcion was like a horrible heretic. Yeah. Like, um, horrible. We'll leave that for another day. Anyway, <laughs> so to deny that Jesus has come in the flesh is to be Antichrist or mm-hmm. of the Antichrist. So Polycarp is basically quoting First John chapter 4. And this is combating a, an early Gnostic sect, an early Gnostic belief called docetism. Docetism means to appear, basically. So the belief was concerning Jesus that he did not actually have flesh. He appeared to be human. He wasn't actually human. 
Therefore, he did not actually die a physical death, and we would not have physical bodies to resurrect into. Mm-hmm. There's no physical savior. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of sounds a little bit like Islam, like when they appear, Jesus that appeared right. to die. That's right. But he didn't. That's right. People can check out some of the Gnostic similarities with Islam, do some internet searches. It's mm. it's there okay. for sure. Um. Also, he says to contradict the evidence of the cross is to be of the devil. So part of that is, again, saying Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. You know, there are different Gnostic beliefs. Some say like he, uh, the, the, the Christ, you know, like came out of him right before he was about to die and he switched places hmm. with someone. Like, or he switched places with Simon of Cyrene who was carrying the cross that the Jesus Christ figure switched places with him. Mm. And then Simon's up there on the cross dying and Jesus sitting under a tree laughing. Like there are these, yeah. That seems really like plausible with the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) That was sarcasm, everyone. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, um, there's a lot of extra biblical uh, evidence from even non-believers that Jesus died through crucifixion. One really cool one is this perhaps first, like late, it's it's almost certainly late first century uh, artwork that was found called the Alexamenos Graffito, which is some graffiti that was mocking a man named Alexamenos who is a Christian, mm-hmm. and what is it? What it's a picture of is a man standing in front of a crucified man in a worshipful position. The man being crucified has the head of a donkey, and there's text under this picture that says Alexamenos worships his god. So this is. Very unfortunate, and yet it's like God redeeming this because it shows this early first century wide widespread understanding from pagans, non-Christians, that Christians worshipped a man who died on the cross, mm. and that Christians worshipped this man who died on the cross as God. This was the God of the Christians. Mm -hmm. Now, it corresponds a lot with um, what Paul says about crucifixion to the Greeks. To the Greeks, crucifixion is foolishness, Mm. which is why the man on the cross has the head of a donkey. Like, what a fool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Polycarp is like, everybody knows Jesus died on the cross. For right. one, but it's really coming against this Gnostic belief that because matter is evil and spirit is good, the Christ figure could not have actually died on a cross. That's Gnost- what he's coming Gnosticism against. Gnosticism is some weird stuff. There are a lot of different <laughs> denominations. A yeah. Lot of different, yeah. Yeah. Like, tons. I mean, just a lot where you're like, there's so, so many stretches on that, but that's all right. That's a, another, another day, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Um, also, uh, oh man, he goes after 
twisting the Lord's words to suit our own wishes, which is interesting. Yeah, it is. We see that a lot in our day. Mm-hmm. Um, but he gets specific with that. He says, twisting or perverting the Lord's words to suit our own wishes by asserting that there are no such things as resurrection or judgment. Now, what's really interesting about that, again, he's most likely talking about Gnostics that are twisting Jesus's words because they call themselves Christians. But they're saying we're not actually going to uh, be physically raised from the dead. So mm-hmm. there's not actual judgment going to... <laughs> You're right. So they're getting to that. What's really interesting in, the, in that is that the Sadducees of Jesus's day did not believe in resurrection or the, the physical resurrection of the dead mm-hmm. or judgment. So they were twisting the words of scripture early on and um, calling themselves followers of Yahweh. You know, the high priest Caiaphas, Annas, these guys were Sadducees. They didn't believe in a resurrection or a judgment. And if you don't believe in that, if you believe like all there is, is this, Mm -hmm. and then it's nothing, that's going to lead most likely to extremely licentious and perverted living. Because really the chief end of man, if that's your belief system, is just pleasure. Why would you do anything other than just make yourself happy right now? which would really come at the expense of many people. Yeah, or or you could even have the approach of like self-preservation. Like I could see somebody who has that belief being like, I need to live as long as I possibly can because this is all there is. Yeah, you want to avoid death. Yeah. But also you want to have as much fun as you can while you're there. Yeah. So getting into power, becoming wealthy, and who are the Sadducees? Right. Mm-hmm. And when they saw something that would be a threat to their power, security, safety, enjoyment, they viewed that person as someone who needed to die. Right. I mean, that's John 11. All right. Um, the, the last ooh, part of yeah. chapter seven. Yeah. 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 So um, he says, so be sober and watch unto prayer earnestly adjuring the all-seeing God to lead us not into temptation, since as the Lord has told us, though the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. So much Peter right there, huh? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, as we were preparing, I was looking at um, Matthew 26, um, where Jesus is praying, and he says to Peter, um, so could you not Watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I think that is interesting how they've chosen to put that in there. But um, letting us be, let us be sober and watch unto prayer. Um, I think it's, we're living in evil times, you know, and obviously it's been evil. This is not something new, but um, this is, there's temptation all around. And 
we have to remain um, aware, alert, and vigilant and in prayer because um, the temptation is is there for all of us. And I think that we're seeing uh, Polycarp calling out different temptations throughout this letter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that right before he does that, he said, don't drift away from the word originally given to us, which or originally delivered to us, which is right out of Jude. And in Jude, one of the main people groups that's called out is leaders who have turned the grace of God into licentiousness and denied the master who bought them, right? Mm -hmm. And so it seems like Polycarp is saying here, yeah, you got a lot of those type of people going around, but don't think that you're beyond falling into that same kind of stuff. So we need to be humble and um, really believe that we need God's help. Right. Yeah. All right. Last chapter. Let us never relax our grasp on the hope and pledge of our righteousness. I mean, Jesus Christ, who bore our sins in his own body on the tree, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who steadfastly endured all things for our sakes, that we might have life in him. Let us imitate that patient endurance of his. And if we do have to suffer for his name's sake, why then let us give glory to him? For that is the example he set for us in his own person and in which we have learned to put our faith. Yeah, you know, being that Polycarp has seen uh, a lot of things in mm -hmm. his time, he's seen and heard stories of people endure and he's seen and heard stories of people fall away. And so it's interesting that one of the things that he says is do not let go of your right. faith in Jesus. Because he did not let go when he was going through all of the suffering that he endured. He did not let go for your sake. Right. So you don't let go. And it seems like it's also implied because like other people are watching. Don't let go even when, you know, you're really struggling. Hang on, hang on. Uh, people need to see those examples of uh, enduring difficulty, but keeping the faith. Right. Yeah. Anything in that last part that was really grabbing you? Um. Well, I was thinking about the part um, suffering for his name um, made me think of Paul and uh, Acts 9 and it talks about how much he must suffer for my name. But also in um, Philippians one twenty nine, I was trying to pull that up, but it talks about suffering for his name. And then it goes right into chapter 2, which talks about the example of Christ during his suffering, you know, the suffering servant kind of message. I think that's, um, it's so important to hear because, you know, like we're talking in the previous chapter about temptation, it is, you're going to go through so many difficult times. And we have an example to look at of Christ who could have avoided suffering. You know, he could have 
taken himself off of the cross. He could have never gone to the cross in the first place, but then what, there would be no salvation with apart from that. Um, we need to keep in mind that everything we do is either like bringing life or bringing death. You know, you talked about this. We've talked about this before, but if I take the easy way out and I... Um, I turn away or I I think that God isn't my savior. I'm going to be my own savior in these situations. Then I am bringing death. And like you said, people are watching. So it doesn't just affect me. It doesn't just affect, um, you know, the judgment that I will face. But other people are looking at it and they think, well, if this person can't, you know, go through this or see even this person turned from Jesus in a difficult time. And like, what's the point? Um, But I mean, just think about when you've read stories of people who have um, taken a stand for their faith and they have, and maybe it's cost them their life or maybe it's cost them their job or maybe it, you know, like there's all different ways that suffering can look and how encouraging it is to us to hear those stories. It is and it's important for us to, to to hear those stories because we need to remind ourselves because I feel like it's really tempting to live a very comfortable life. I think we do live a very comfortable life in so many ways. And so um, it's important to remind ourselves that that's not what this world is for. And that is not what Jesus promised us. And um, that's not what Jesus modeled for us. So we need to be ready. Yeah. Last thing I wanted to um, to highlight that's still on this, this section is this phrase, uh, if we do have to suffer for his namesake, why then let us give glory to him? Mm. And I don't think that's just a, well, just praise God, you know, I'm suffering mm-hmm. for Jesus, you know, a mindless platitude that's spoken into the air for others to, you know, look at us with awe, you know, mm-hmm. or something like that. You know, I don't, I don't think that's what he's getting at. There's so many passages in the scripture that talk about what God is doing in the midst of suffering, what he can do, at least for those who are staying faithful to him. Mm-hmm. And you think about Romans chapter five, Romans chapter eight, second Corinthians chapter uh, four, first Peter chapter one, James chapter one. Like there's so many passages, uh, Matthew chapter five, Polycarp loves to uh, talk about the Beatitudes and that last Beatitude, Beatitude talks about um, considering yourself blessed, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so like in that sense, the Makarios blessed doesn't mean happy so much as it means like rejoicing based upon the knowledge that God is growing his grace in me. Lord, how long I call there's no Cry out, violence, but you don't save. Righteousness, oppressed, and evil prosper. 
What you strive in conflict fill all our days. Oh my Lord, have fully your great wonders. Oh my God, I'm in all for you've done. Oh my. Save your calm, revive your 